it's at the edges of capabilities where we learn what we have, what we're made of. And so our job is to, I don't think, so I purposely don't use the word push, but, but the, I know that that's an easy word. I want to use the word from in my life about challenge. What's up, everybody? Welcome back to another episode of You Think, presented by Audiorama and Body Armor. Um, a lot going on here in the Olsen household in the world of youth sports. As you guys know, my oldest son has started his first fall season of tackle football. Um, so after summer workouts, we we had summer workouts and, you know, just training and conditioning and whatnot, no pads or anything. But now for the last couple of weeks, we've been in pads. We have our first, you know, they call it a jamboree, but it's really just a scrimmage with a few other local programs um, in the area. We actually had that on Saturday. Um, so we're looking forward to that. We've been We've been at full pads, full swing. I'll tell you what, for any of you guys who have your kids playing tackle football, I mean, I remember playing it as a kid, but now just as a parent, it is a lot of work. I mean, we are there four nights a week for over three hours every practice, you know, and, you know, playing so much of the other sports, you know, each practice is an hour and a half, two hours. We practice twice a week, three times a week at the max. There's just so much to do in football. And, and sometimes I took it for granted, like these kids know nothing. They, they, they don't, they don't know, they don't know the simplest things. And, and again, you just have to go back and just assume no one knows anything and, and teach them. And, and I think that's been the fun part, you know, seeing kids from the ground floor up now. And, you know, even the kids who've played in years past, you know, are still young, you know, it's 11 you. So a lot of them are 10, 11 years old. So it's, it's been fun. It's been challenging. You know, you got 22 kids on the team. They all have to play a minimum amount of plays. Um, so again, different than basketball where you got to get five kids ready in baseball where you only have a roster of 11, you know, we got 22 kids. You're teaching them all an offensive position, a defensive position. You're finding out, you know, who can do what and play to their strengths. So that's been, uh, that's been a, a nightly, uh, experience for us in the Olsen house, but it's been fun. I'm doing it with my dad. I'm doing it with Luke Keekley, obviously the all time and one of the best linebackers of all time in the NFL is a good buddy of mine. He's coaching with us. So couple other dads and guys that we know. So that's been a ton of fun, taking up a lot of our time. We are also trying to balance baseball. My daughter's playing soccer. So fall should be very interesting with us, especially since on most weekends, I'll be out of town uh, calling games with Fox and my poor wife's going to be responsible for all this. So that's, that's the update in the Olsen house. Um, And uh, we'll keep you guys posted as we get into our, We'll have an update next week after our scrimmage this weekend. So we'll, we'll find out a lot about where we are and what we need to get better at. All right. So today we have our, our long awaited, our first ever re- recurring guest here on you think um, somebody that started this journey off with us. Episode one, first ever interview. When we launched, you think Dr. Michael Gervais, we have him back. Um, he's a fan favorite. His episode every single week is one of our, one of our most highly downloaded and, and highly subscribed um, episodes still months later, people want to hear from him. So we reached back out. He was kind enough to uh, make a second appearance. We're so excited. You guys have been sending in um, questions. You guys have been requesting his presence again. So we're so thankful for him to come back. Um, thank you as always uh, to our sponsor, Body Armor. Body Armor not only fuels this show, but also fuels the madness that is the Olsen family youth football experience and all of our teams. There's a lot of choices out there for sideline sports drinks, but you know, for our family, for our teams, for my kids, you know, when we, when we go to the store and say, Hey, what do you guys want for practice? What do you guys want for the drink? 
to, to all of them. I want a body armor. I want a body armor. You know, some like the, the orange, some like the, some of my kids like the light, which I think is interesting. I personally like the other ones, but you know, there's so many, there's so many choices. There's something for everyone. And that just seems to be where all of our kids gravitate towards. So thank you so much to body armor for being a part of this show. Body armor is made with coconut water, B vitamins, and no artificial sweeteners. You can go to drinkbodyarmor.com for more. So now please enjoy this episode of You Think with Dr. Michael Gervais. Doctor, thank you so much for uh, for joining us today. This has been something people have been asking about for a long time. Oh, Greg, it's, I mean, thank you for the kind introduction. And, you know, I, I love speaking with you because you have the heartbeat, you know, of what's taking place for a for parents and kids. And like, I love speaking to you about this. So, and by the way, I love your name. You think, right. It's like you think and you think and the whole, like when I, when it hit me, I was like, Oh, wait a minute. I see what he did. Like, it's really good. Well, Well, I appreciate that. I wish we were smart enough to have put all that together, but for this, I will take, I will take the compliment and just run with it. So thank you. (laughs) But, um, But yeah, but, um, you know, it, it's so funny since our conversation, God, which it's hard to believe was, was back in March, you know, it's five months ago, uh, you know, yeah, five, four or five months ago. It's, it's funny. I, I find myself now, you know, whether I'm laying in bed or driving home, I think back to our conversation often, you know, I, and I think back, you know, what, you know, what would, what would, you know, what would Michael say? Would, would, would Gervais think that I was on the right path or the wrong one? And, and sometimes I'm like, yeah, I think he'd be okay with that. And other times I'm like, man, I, blew that. I, I I can't ever, good thing he wasn't there because he would have not been happy with it. So I just know that y- your conversation not only made a, a huge impact on our listeners and our viewers, and, and we hear from people weekly who still go back and listen to your episode, but also on me, you know, just on helping me be a better parent, helping, helping me be a better, um, you know, youth sports coach. So for that, we are super grateful. The, the one thing I want to start here. So uh, the one thing that really made probably the largest impact on me that I still hold on to and struggle with is you were very adamant when we spoke that if you knew what I knew, you would not coach your kids. And that's, as you know, that is hard for me. Like that is my world right now. I am very involved with my kids. So I just want to take a minute to dive back in. Let, let's unpack that statement from the the first episode and and just dive a little bit more deeper. Like what what in your experience and what in your working, you know, in your work with, with these athletes and these families and, and coaches leads you to feel so strongly about that? Okay, there is a, a small twist in what I was saying that maybe got missed. And um, I think this will give you some relief, actually. So what I said was, if you knew what I knew, you, meaning not you, Greg, but right. you pejoratively, yep. you wouldn't be pushing your kids. And so you would... So the thought underneath there is that what I've seen for years, and this is working with two, two types of folks, the literally the, the athletes and the families of the best in the world, and then those that are thinking that it, it should have worked out, but it didn't. And so, and that's a very thin line and it's only less than 1% of folks actually make it, you know, to the, to the pros. And that means 99% of folks that are trying and, and, and working towards it, it doesn't work out in, in the way that they hoped it would. So the washout is heavy. 
when we push our kids, when we challenge them in a way that is over the line, if you will, and we lose the spirit of the child for the spirit of success, what ends up taking place is that that child ends up not knowing how they matter. And they consistently will look outside of themselves to see if they're okay. That's and really there's bad. this haunt. Yeah, it, there's a haunt that lasts for a long time. We call it an echo chamber, whatever, or not an echo chamber, but call it an echo that's reverbing, which is this sense, am I okay? And when we externalize that, when we look to others or we look to accolades or recognition or money or fame or the car we're driving or whatever it might be to see if we're okay, it becomes problematic. So that's when we push too far and the outcome or quote unquote, the success, the external success is bigger than the spirit of the person. And that's, that's where I've seen some incredibly difficult life experiences take place for people. Yeah, I think that's super, that's super interesting. So now in, in regards to, okay, so I coach, I coach my kids teams in some of the seasons. Um, I am a, I don't, I, I guess pusher is the right word, not just for my kid, but all the kids that I coach, right? Like I'm a big believer that the people that hold kids back the most are the adults, right? We, we live, I steal your, your phrase, um, often when you call them Zamboni parents, right? Where they, they, they yeah, make everything on. smooth out in front of them. So I, I steal that, but I always give you credit. Don't worry. No, um, it's good. Yeah, no. I, <laughs> but I, I, I guess, listen, I, I, I took it from somebody. I'm, I'm you know, so you're, you're, the rights are free at this okay. point for sure. All right. Fair, yeah. fair enough. Fair enough. So I, you know, I'm, I'm a, I don't believe in that, right? Like I believe that the parents are who hold the kids back. That's too hard. That's too challenging. It's too hot. It's too long. If the kids are capable and interested in doing it, I say we take the we take the leash off and just let them go. And if it does, if they have a good game, a bad game, if they're the best kid, the worst kid, let it sort itself out. But let's not hold them back. So I am a big proponent of making kids do things that they, everyone thinks are a little outside their capabilities. Because what I find is more often than not, and I don't want to say 100% of the time, but pretty close, the kids end up achieving more than they ever imagined. Right. So as I'm operating now as a coach slash dad with that train of thought and that approach, how do I make sure that I don't cross that line? The line that you mentioned where you take you put the success, you get the the push, the lessons that I think they're getting and not cross that line where you're making those scars and you're making that resentment. Like what what is how do you find that? Great. Okay, it's actually not complicated. So I agree with your. your tenant here, which is if I can create, and this is how I think about it, like uh, exchanging ideas here, is that if I can create an environment that supports and challenges the child to go further than they thought they could go, I feel like I'm doing a great job as an adult in their life. Okay. So it, it I think there, therein lies the answer, support then challenge. So what happens for many people is that the support piece is missed. And the challenge is evident. So this, once you get the support, it's almost like that's the safety net and the support. And then you can help, you can encourage them to climb as high as that you think that they can go and to jump because you got a safety net, not to mix metaphors too much here, but, (laughs) but the support comes from who are you? What do you like? What is your unique worldview as a kid? 
you know, how do you process information? What scares you? What excites you? It's really understanding the kid and then, and then making sure that they understand that your care for them. I, this is such a big point. Your care for them is not dependent on how well they do. Your care for them, your, and I mean care in the deepest way, and then is separate but related to because you're using this thing about sport to show them that they matter, to show them that you know going forward and being uncomfortable and being on the, the edge of risk, all of that is part of becoming a strong human, a capable human. And so, you know, it, it's support then challenge. And then you create the environment for people to go for it. And you celebrate the go, going for it as much as you do the success. And uh, I think you got it. I think that's, I mean, that what a striking, just what it just kind of caught me, like what an interesting way to put it. Their success is not how you value them, right? It's, and I, and I try to have this conversation with my kids all the time where it's, it's not so much that I need you to be successful. I don't need you to be a great baseball player, soccer player, whatever it is. You, know, you don't have to be the greatest math student in school. But it is important to me that you become the best version at what you love to do. Right. So, for example, you know, if my kid tells me I want to be a great baseball player, I want to play high school baseball, I want to make this team or soccer, whatever it is, I say, okay. I said, if you want to do that, I will be there every minute of my ability to give you the insight, the, the tools, the leadership, whatever it takes to achieve that goal. If you don't achieve it, that doesn't mean all this work wasn't worth it. Right. So we so that was I guess that was the way I always kind of framed it. But you did such you framed it in such a more you know, such a better way, obviously, like, I think that's so valuable for our families to understand, like, as you're pushing your kid, and as you're practicing with them and working with them to meet these little goals of making this team or becoming a starter or whatever that little incremental goals are, along the way, constantly remind them that if they don't achieve that immediate goal in the near future, you're still my child, I still love you, I'm still your parent, I'm proud of the work you put in, I'm proud of overcoming adversity, I think that's such a strong point and I hope everyone kind of takes that with them from listening to this. Yeah. And I, I want to make sure I'm doubling down with you that the challenge part is incredibly important. It's not like there's an, just because you're demonstrating support that you don't challenge the absolute edges for people like that. The, our job as parents, I believe as well, I think you would support this, um, but I'm not sure, is to help people know what their edges are because at the edges is where you learn your capabilities. Do I have what it takes to be me and grounded and focused and present and still, you know, rotate my hips and, and kind of follow through if whatever they're doing, yeah, I think it was baseball, right? right? Like right. whatever it might be. And it's at the edges of capabilities where we learn what we have, what we're made of. And so our job is to, I don't think, so I purposely don't use the word push, but, but the, I know that that's an easy word. I want to use the word from in my life about challenge, setting the conditions, you know, creating an environment that is incredibly challenging, but never, I know when it's wrong is when another kid or an adult, or even myself, if I'm, you know, upside down here is that I am, or they are attacking the character of the person as opposed to the behavior that they're trying to get better at. So 
you know, that's not okay is perfectly fine. Like, listen, we've talked, we've talked a lot about keeping your elbow in like you, okay, what is this going to take? And there's a little bit of intolerance, frustration in frustration in the way that I'm saying that that's, that's okay. Coaching, you know, it's better coaching to say, Hey, listen, we keep talking about keeping your elbow in, like, make sure you keep your elbow in. Like it's a little bit better there, but sometimes you got to change somebody's physiology for them to get it. Yeah. And it's a cheap it's, trick like frustration and loud booming voices of adults is a cheap trick to change a kid's physiology. When you change their physiology, what we know from brain science is that memory is entrenched easier when emotions are on board. So if you change someone's physiology and there's an emotional state, and then you give a message, they're more likely to hear it. But if you don't have that, and I'm not suggesting that that is sustainable, but what we do know is when that does take place, that all of a sudden kids are like, oh God, that, that moment. Well, yeah, you scared them. You, you scared a message into them. It, it's not, it, again, it's not sustainable. What we want to do is support, then challenge. And if you can get the environment to be fun and stimulating and challenging in that way, the way that you, one of the ways you can do that is by loving when they get to the edges of their capabilities and reward them by commenting on it, by asking questions about it. What did it feel like when you did that? What did you notice about the way you were thinking? What did you pay attention to? What was happening right before, you know, that thing? And what did it feel like right after? And so let me be more concrete. When um, my son comes home from school, oftentimes, I've, you know, I've got lots of questions for him, but the questions are more like this. What scared you today? And he's like, dad, I go, no, seriously, what'd you do that got on the edge today? He's like, well, you know, I went over and talked to this person and da, 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 or whatever it was. So what scared you today? What was exciting today? What'd you figure out today? Did you have any unlocks? You know, like talking about basically the process of getting to the edge more so than what were your grades? You know, like, did, what'd you get on the test? None of that outcome-based stuff is as important as the stuff that makes the outcomes come to life. It's so funny you say that. Something we've always, we try to talk about, and I think sometimes I need to talk more in these terms along the lines of what you're saying is I try to stress to the kids, and maybe sometimes I don't do it in the best way, but I try to stress like the inputs, right? The you know, On the back of the TV, like the inputs are a lot more are more important than the outputs, right? So much of our world is focused on the output. The end result, the win, the loss, the grade, the SAT score, the did you hit it? Did you catch it? Whatever the over the outcome is, oh, is in everyone's brain all the time. How do we focus more on the input? So you know, you again the way the way you phrase it, but like in my mind, I've tried to try to implement that into the kids. Like, let's focus on doing everything right. You will never have all the desired outputs. The outcomes will never. You could do everything right every minute of every day, and you're going to drop a pass, strike out, miss the team, whatever the outcome is. But I'll tell you what, if you do everything right, more often than not, that outcome is going to be what you want. And if you do things wrong, you got no shot. Like we, so like, to, but again, to hear you talk about that, but so much, when I hear you describe it, I always listen so clearly into like the questions that you ask, right? So when my kids do come home, I do say, how'd you do in school? Did you get any grades back? How, what did you do on the playground? What did you learn in science? Whatever. But then I hear you talk and you're a lot less specific, but I almost feel like you get to the 
you're, it's easier to get to the point when you frame the questions like you just said, how you answer them, how you ask them to your son. Yeah, well, it's not that grades don't matter. Of course they do. But the inputs to the outputs. And so I'm going to, they already, they already know that the outputs matter, right? They're, they're putting some stuff together. They figure things out that pretty quickly. So I need to over rotate on the inputs. And I, I do think that Matt, so let's, let's talk about coaching for a minute, like sport coaching. There are amateur coaches, there are performance minded coaches, there's high performance coaches, and then there's masterful coaches. If you think about that as a bit of a hierarchy, my, and there's no research in science about what I'm about to say here, but this has been my experience is that amateur coaches, they talk a lot. My God, they talk a lot and they're not that accurate right? They're amateur. They're still kind of new at this performance coaches. They still talk a lot. They're more accurate, but they're still talking a lot. High performance coaches are incredibly accurate and they've got a little bit more questions than they do um, talking. So they ask, they're trying to figure things out. And what I've noticed that coaches that have truly mastered the craft of pulling the best out of somebody else they are full of questions and they, they present almost like they don't know because they're so fascinated with what it really takes to unlock. It's not simple, son. It's actually quite amazing how this place, how something takes place. So, so the, the masterful coach is asking lots of questions and it's like, if I mix another metaphor, it's like teach a kid how to fish. You know, yeah, like he's right. fed for life as opposed to that idea of like, just go, hey, the fish are over there. Just go drop your pole over there. You'll be fine. That's, That's like more of an amateur kind of performance coach, if you will. So I think the the art of questions is, is really good. It's, it's like, it's an unlock in and of itself. And so anyways, that's what you're picking up yeah. on. It's, it's a fascination I have as well. It is. And it's an art form that I guess you just have to learn. You have to play with it. You have to be open-minded to hearing people like yourself kind of share this. So I do have another question to that regard, right? The idea of deep learning, which is similar to what you're talking about before, where you get right onto the edge of what you're capable or incapable of, and that's where the best progress and the best development happens, right? There's a lot of books and science and research into that state of deep learning. How do we as parents or youth coaches, how what is there a formula for finding that out, right? I, I always... I, you know, I know on the last episode, you shared your 15% rule where you put kids, you know, 15% higher than where they're capable of at the current moment. Like, but how do we, like, that sounds great. It makes sense. But like, how do we as parents make sure we don't overshoot or undershoot that mark? Like, is there a way for us to quantify it and say, okay, this, my child is at this benchmark, the best place for him to achieve more deep learning is to put him here, this team, this league, this type of coach, like, is it as simple as that? Or do you, is it more like trial and error and just continuing to test the boundaries and see where you fall? Okay. That's a really good question. And let's talk about, let me work backwards because I think the essence of it will come towards the end end of this, this part of our conversation. But let's talk about playing up for a minute because you're hinting at that. When we play up, when kids play up, there's two variables that are really important to making that a successful experience. So it doesn't necessarily mean mean that they're playing up in age, but playing up 
but usually it is that. But they're playing up against other skilled um, players, just a little bit beyond their reach. It The coach matters and the kids matter. So if the coach creates an environment that is cutthroat and like this misguided uh, idea of what high performance is, kind of the adult version of high performance, because you know better than anybody in the pros, like you don't have, you know, NFL, not for long, you don't have a long runway and, and next person is up and they want your job and they are probably working really hard because they, they can see it, but they're just not able to be it yet. Okay. So when you take that adult version, apply it to kids, there's some real problems with it. But when kids play up, there can be some magic. If the coach understands how to create an environment where the person matters, independent of, of their skill level. And so my kid just started uh, a new sport and he played up and the coach was a, an Olympian uh, and he was one of the best in the world at what he did. And we'd known each other for 20 years and he, I, I trusted him. And sure enough, all of the kids on the team took care of my son in a way that they're like, hey, you're good. Let's go. You know what? Oh, my God. I remember when I couldn't do that. Yes, you just did. That. You know, and they just took care of him. So if you can be a coach that takes care of the person and creates like high standards of what's expected, then I think you've got a winning program. Now, to answer your question about learning, one, when something is really fun and challenging, our brains light up. So if you can get those two variables together, it is a natural default for somebody to be all in. So it's really challenging and it's really fun. There's something stimulating about it. Okay, so that would be for kids the best way to go. The next level up, but I'm not suggesting we do this for kids, is that if we add danger in it, our brains must deeply focus. So, so I'm giving you like how we work, but not making a suggestion that this is what we need to do in elite sport, or let alone in um, uh, for youth sport. The next level is to understand how do you train deep focus? So it's not necessarily the 15% challenge. That is almost like a shortcut. Because if you can challenge it just enough, then the brain will focus is the essence of that takeaway. But if you don't have the, the ability to deeply focus, it becomes a difficult way of living. Because deep focus is the entry point into flow state. Deep focus is the entry point, the required entry point into high performance. And you can't always have the environment be just the right stimulation for deep focus to take place. It's a bit of a disaster. You have externalized an incredibly important capability to the environment or other people to set the conditions for you to be your very best. So let's just isolate deep focus for just a moment. So for deep focus and deep learning to take place, we must be able to work with distractions. And there's two types of distractions. There's external distractions. And guess what the more vibrant distraction is? The ones that are inside. And so working inside, with of course. your distractions is what deep focus is really about. Because as soon as something kind of grabs your attention and you run with it, like the question, am I okay? Or the question, what am I supposed to do with my arm? Or the question, what is coach going to think of me? And, and we run with that. We're missing. We're mind blind. We're completely 
unable to focus on the immediate task at hand. And so knowing how to work with that thought that bubbles up or that noise that comes from the external world, knowing how to say hello and goodbye to that, knowing how to wink at it, knowing how to say, oh, I see you, come on back to the present moment is a capability that will last them a lifetime. So that begs the question, how? Mindfulness. Mindfulness is, it's been around 2,600 years. The science of meditation or mindfulness training is ridiculous. And it is one of those things that we haven't quite globally, let's call it not actually not globally. We haven't quite across youth sport, let alone uh, adults in the United States, cross that chasm to say, right, of course. There's a loose association right now like, oh, yeah, I know what that is. Boy, it's hard. It's actually not. Or, yeah, I know what that is, but isn't that for like weirdos? Actually, it's not, <laughs> you know, so um, I don't know if you did you do any meditation or mindfulness work? I don't know. About I, I, I got into some mindfulness stuff, you know, through some of the apps and su- through some of the people that I would follow and download like their audio book or whatnot that really got into mindfulness. And, and you know, a lot of that like stoicism, you know, controlling what you, you know, controlling what you control. Don't don't live with you know, the fear of something that might happen. Don't, uh, what, what is the famous saying? Like, don't, don't live with uh, whatever. Uh, I forget, but like one of those main, like stoic, um, you know, staples of stoicism and whatnot. So I've, I, I've looked into and studied some of that. I don't, I probably don't do it enough. And I definitely don't do it enough with my kids to introduce that. I think that's something, there's a great opportunity there to bring in a lot of that mind training as much as the physical body training and whatnot. Okay, sure. great. This is where you and I are going to light up because this is so simple. Honestly, it is so simple to do. And um, I think you could start your kids at like age six, you know, okay. like, or maybe even a little bit younger, but like at age six here. He, so let me just do something like for teenagers. Cause that's what most, I think parents are, you know, they're, they're thinking about their teenagers. It's a, it's simple as, like eight minutes, six minutes a day of doing something as a family, it'll go, it'll, it'll be a pill much easier swallowed if the family's doing it. It's not just a weird kid that's got to, you know, like, but the gift is amazing. And it's, you set a timer and for six minutes, let's say you just focus on your inhale and then focus on your exhale. That's it. And you have your exhales be twice as long as your inhale. So if you inhale for four seconds as a family, your exhales are what? eight seconds. Yep. And then what's going to happen? Your mind will wander. That's how it works. But then when it does wander, you're practicing sitting in your living room. You're practicing refocusing. Oh my God. Refocus on what? Just your breathing? Then then you refocus on the next, let's call it the inhale. If it happens to be the inhale with all of your essence, with all of your internal faculties, you focus on the inhale as if it were the only thing that mattered. And then you do the same thing on the exhale. And then your mind, like I said, it's going to wander to something. It's going to check. Am I doing it right? Is this weird? My back kind of hurts. Oh, I heard that sound. And we call it train of thought for a reason, because as soon as you jump on a train, like a thought, it just takes you somewhere. And over, over time, Greg, what ends up taking place is like when you first start, you're like, oh my God, eight minutes went by. I think I focused on two breaths. I was solving my math problems. I was thinking about my girlfriend, boyfriend, whatever, like, you know, and then as you get skilled, what ends up taking place, it's like you, you get off that train of thought much sooner. You get off on stop like 12 instead of 22. 
right? And then you start giving off on stop two. And that before you, before you know it, you're like, oh, wait, I'm not getting on the train. I'm like so locked in and focused that once you build that capability, you can go anywhere in the world and know how to lock in and be deeply focused on the right thing in the right way. It is so what I'm hearing is, so what I'm hearing is the ability to manage internal distraction, mm. losing train of thought. Now, will that, once you, once you have the ability to control your internal distraction, your internal thoughts, internal concerns, fears, whatever you want to classify them as, we'll just call them distractions. Yeah. Does that now allow the external distractions to be the next layer, which is, is it easier now as a byproduct of controlling? It has to be, right? Oh, dude. And you know, yeah. you know from playing, the external distractions right. are not as, as great as you think. Like, it's really the yeah. internal distractions. Like, people are making the sounds and the bangers and all that stuff. Yeah, you don't even. And, and yeah, it just fades to the, to the background almost, right? Yeah. It's the internal um, conversation or the internal work that's taking place that is the game changer. And I will tell you this, Greg. I think you'll appreciate this. Um, you're not even in the game if you don't understand how to work with your thoughts, you're not even in the game. And so parents, if you want to help your children, help them understand how thought one for themselves. And you can't, you can't help them know how thought one and thought two work together and how that promotes thought three and how when thought one, two, and three randomly are working together, how the emotions that sit underneath it take place. You can't, you can't see their thoughts. So you have to help them understand how their thoughts work. And the only person that can really understand your thoughts are you. So parents, create an environment for your kids to understand how their thoughts work. Because if you don't, they're never going to really be in the game. That's so true. And, and as I'm sitting here reflecting on some of my like coaching slash parenting approaches, as a coach, I spend a lot of time, I think me and you talked about this on, on our first conversation, I spend a lot of time purposefully creating like in a practice setting or a training setting, a lot of external distraction, mm -hmm. right? I want it to feel intense. I want it to feel fast. I want it to feel hard. I want it to be loud. I don't, right. I don't believe in there. There's a lot of families that push back on it. They're like, well, you know, the kids need to feel calm. It needs to be a, an, a quiet setting. And, and I sit there and I say, if your kid has to always have the external factors to their necessity, you can't play sports because you're not going to be able to control who's yelling, who's screaming, what fans are saying, who's blowing air horns, who's arguing with the umpire. You're not going to have any control over that, right? So I spend a lot of time working on that in practice where you're going to be, there's going to be people talking, there's going to be people yelling, there's going to be feedback, there's going to be loud, it's going to be fast. The hardest ground ball you get hit is going to be today. The, the hardest hit you're going to get tackled in practice is today because now come game come Saturday or Sunday in the game, nothing that ever happens in that game will ever compare externally to the, to what you did in practice. So I guess the point though, that I'm missing in the next step to this is continue doing that. But now how do we also coach and train and manage the internal distraction to go along with the ability to operate in a hostile environment because we're training that way. So it, it kind of goes hand in hand but it's probably the next step for me as a coach, as a parent, to put more time into the internal that we are putting into the external. 100%. You know, so, and 
eight minutes a day is the minimum threshold, according to research on mindfulness, where you start to okay. see some material changes. But if you want to start at four minutes, no problems. Just work yeah. your way up to eight. 20 is more ideal, according to some of the research that we've been um, investigating in. But it, how long is practice for you? Is it two hours? Two, two hours? Yeah, we'll practice for two hours. Yeah, so I would pick um, 10 minutes, 5%. And I would do it at the end or the beginning, right? And and I, it, that would be yeah. separate but related mindset training. And then you could, yep. you could do meditation. You could do breathing training. You could do an exercise where you have them um, bring a journal, bring bring like a um, uh, like a charge journal. It's something that the military mm-hmm. uses, right? Like where you go. Yep. Yeah, but anyway, it's just bring a little journal about a high performance journal, and then they're writing their best thoughts, the way that they want to back themselves and speak to themselves, and just for five minutes, ten minutes, write that stuff down. I would also have them before every practice turn into you three goals that are 100% under their control. Okay. So, so, and maybe it's in their journal, but you look at them and now you need, it's a little extra step for you, but the discipline there is that they're focusing on what's in their control. And if they write them down, you just made it more real. My son, every time we go to practice, he's, he's got a little pad of paper and he writes down three goals that are hundred percent under his control. Usually it's, um, one thing mental, one thing technical, and one thing kind of teammate wise, you know? Okay. And yeah. It's a good, it's a good way to start it, to introduce it. It's a good template. Yeah. And super simple. And then at the end of practice, this is where it becomes material at the end of the practice. So at the beginning, they turn it into you or show you, and you're like, Johnny, okay, hold on. I know that this, you think that this one's important, but actually you're good here. Or, or it's like, actually, like, I want you to tweak this one, write this one down, but it has to be controllable you know, like that's what you're playing them back. And at the end of practice, you have them score themselves. So they do a self scout, you know, like on a scale of one to 10, be honest, how'd you do? Because if at the beginning, Greg, if it was something like, I want to be a great teammate, or I want to celebrate, or I want to have fun, you know, like, did you really have fun today? That's interesting. That's super helpful. Yeah. That's a good, good I, I love that. Those are good practical Right. There's there's advice and then there's like practical advice. Right. There's there's things that you can actually go out and do that you can touch, feel, implement. So th- those are always the the tools that I think are so valuable. I'm, again, I'm sitting here selfishly making all these notes for myself, oh, but also go. for let's, all of our let's create for this, all of our listeners. Let's create your community to be rock solid. And this is a practice I, I was doing at the Seahawks before games. Most of the athletes yeah. I'd spend time with and, and coaches too. I'll be like, "What are your three? And they're like, "Okay, yeah. listen, like." Like I'm thinking of one of the receivers, um, focus on the ball, get in and out of, no, get in and out of breaks, focus on the ball and, um, be big. Yeah. There you go. Cool. It's, it's so good. It's quite, it's, you can, you can touch it. You can feel it. That's so good. I want to, I want to transition to, to one other thing that I came in that I really am curious your feedback on and it's parent involvement, right? I, I think, I think it's such a, it's a, it's at the core of every conversation we've had here on you think, I think it's at the core of this entire youth sports experience is every kid wants their parent to be involved. You say support, then, then challenge. They want their parent to be present, involved, engaged, you know, whatever, however you want to classify it. But then at what point is it time to just step back and let them? So for example, so we're, we're down at the beach, um, for, for the weekend uh, down, down in South Carolina. And I came to the beach a little behind my son. He had a friend in town. And when I got to the beach, 
they were running in the sand. They, they were doing their morning run sprints, conditioning or whatever. And I walked in, they were probably 10 minutes into it. So I just sit there. And for the first couple of minutes, I was just watching what they were doing. I gave them no instruction. They said, Hey dad, we're going to go to the beach and start our run. I said, okay, I'll meet you there. Okay. So I get there and they're probably 10 minutes in and what they're doing is good. It's they're doing it on their own accord. No one told them what to do. They're doing sprints. They've marked it off with their shoes, their finger out. So I watched them for five, 10 minutes and they walked over and like, Hey, we're almost, we're almost done with our run. I said, okay. I said, you guys have been here for 10, 15 minutes. What else are you going to do? And you're like, and that's where they kind of came to a, uh, we kind of thought that we would just go boogie boarding, right? Like in their mind, they had checked the box. So now the dilemma I found myself in is, okay, do I just say you took the initiative, you did it on your own, whether it was the best workout or not, you did it in your own accord. Now go off and have the rest of your day. But at the end, but now I'm sitting there and I'm like, you worked out for 10, 15 minutes. Like what you did was good that you did it, but it wasn't like good, good. So the next thing you know, I'm like, Hey, let's add this. Let's do this. this. So we end it. We go another 30 minutes, but now it's all of a sudden at my control. I'm telling them what to do, when to rest, where to run, where to throw a med, you know, whatever the drill is. And then they go off and they play into the water. I guess my question to you after saying all of that is, I then came home at night and I said, well, should I have just let them do it on their own, even though it wasn't a great workout just because it was their workout or was I in the right place of saying, Hey, let me, let me guide you through this final 30 and get a little bit more out of this. And are they saying, see, dad can never just leave us alone. He's always got to do right. Like yeah, right. in that example, what is the approach that's best? Boy, I, I, that's a tough one. You know? Is it better for them to do their workout? that's not as good or do theirs plus what you would guide and get more out of it and see, and see a little bit more outcome, but then lose their will, their feeling of like, I'm in control. I'm driving this ship. I don't always have to wait for dad to tell me what to do. Like I struggle with that a lot. Yeah. I think that that's, that is a really unique challenge and the context matters. Like where are they in their arc? If they're really trying to assert themselves and if they're feeling like dad's got too heavy of a hand, then probably it would be to default to the other side for a little bit, but you could, but if not, you could do, let's say it was just like, they're looking to you like, um, Hey, we just did that dad. And, um, you know, we want to play, but we also want to get better. But like, you know, like, what do you think? And then I would do, I would employ, um, a, a best tactic, which is to, to, to reframe it this way. Okay. So totally up to you. We'll do both. Which one do you want to do first? Do you want to throw the ball a little bit and do some kind of whatever's, or do you want to go boogie board? So which do you want to do first? And, but that that's assuming that they're looking to you for like getting better and fun. And, you know, and if they really want to just, you know, I don't know, get in the ocean and kind of goof off for a little bit, then sometimes you got to know which battles, I guess that you're going to pick. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah. The context, I think, matters more than the actual answer. Yeah. I just, I, I hear, we hear from so many parents, right? We get all these fan questions. And then I, you know, I'd come up with them on my, just from my own experiences of parenting and coaching. And so many of the questions we get from our listeners is we want to help our child. Our child says they want to do X, Y, and Z. We want to help them. We want to get them training. We want to get them to teams. We want to get them to practice, whatever it is. Like we're there to support our child. 
but when do we just let our child do it on their own, even if we know the way they would do it is wrong? Well, I will not wrong. Maybe not wrong. Not, not as not right. good as not as good as it could be. Okay, so I would absolutely like if you noticed that you had that thought, Greg, which is like, oh, look, they're running some sprints right now. I would celebrate that autonomy and that independence and that care. I would celebrate that like a wild person if that was new and if it was something that I wanted to reinforce that that is cool. That's an unlocked son and friend. You know, I, I would come to the beach and like, I'd honestly, you'd see a wild man like, Oh my God. Like, and I'm just having fun and being gregarious and like, look at you. You're, this is what it takes now. Isn't this great that when you love some, something so much that you just want to put in the work. Oh my God. All right. And then I would, and then I would try to see if I could extend it a little bit longer and if there's a natural extending that could take place and if not, no problems, you know? And yeah. so, and extend it in a way maybe that still feels like it's their work. That's exactly right. Yeah. Like, like there's almost a little, like there's a little, there's a little sleight of hand in there. Massaging of it. Yeah. But kids yeah, yeah, are yeah. so smart. Okay. Listen, teenagers, you know this cause you're, you're one teenagers are incredibly skilled at keeping things from adults <laughs> and they're incredibly skilled at figuring out how to, um, be sensitive to if they're trying to manipulate me or not because their job is to figure out who they are and so they must figure out if they're being manipulated and they're really good at it so i i would be i would tread lightly there that's for sure i know it and these are all the things that are like running through my brain i'm like i can help them so much yeah but i don't want to feel because i'm guilty of this right like i i know it I'm conscious of it. I, they say, I want to achieve this. Yep. So I'll take my daughter, right? She's nine. Yesterday, she's like, dad, can we go practice soccer? Anytime my kid asks me, I will stop everything that I'm doing and we will go. What do you think she wants? Does she want to get better at soccer or does she want to be around dad? I think a combination of both. Okay. I think with her, the idea of getting better at soccer sounds great. Mm-hmm. But I think in that moment of time, she sees me practice with the boys. She see, and I think she's like, I want to see if dad, so I will drop anything I'm doing. You got it. Now, if she said, dad, you want to go pick up seashells? I'd probably, and if I'm being honest with myself, I'd be like, honey, let me finish this. I have 10 more minutes of what I'm doing, but yes, I will still go do it with you. It might not be like drop everything to go. It's, it is what it is. It's just the way I'm wired. So anyway, So we go downstairs into like our little basement area of our house here. And she wants her idea of practice is she just wants to like kick the ball back and forth. And I'm like, well, honey, like here's some really good footwork drills that I've picked up from some of your coaches or that I've seen, you know, on Instagram, whatever. And they're introductory ball handling, like let's do these. But then again, I find myself saying she asked me to practice. Her idea of practicing is this. Should I turn it into my idea of practicing? Because I know that's really what she needs to start implementing if she does truly want to get better. Like, I don't know. I, 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 I always resort to what I think they need to get better. Yeah, and you know too much, right? You, you actually know too much. Yeah, it's hard for me to go practice and not practice. Yeah, so I understand that. Like, I'll tell you, I'll share in some misery here, if you will. Mis- misery loves miserable company. So, <laughs> you know, so <laughs> fair. Um, I would work out with my son. We'd have a coach come in and I know how bougie that sounds, but it was during the pandemic and he wanted to do fitness. 
we couldn't go to a place. And so it was a local guy that it was great. And he would, you know, just tribal, he would come to the house and he would, um, he, he, he give me and my son a workout. Yeah. And I'm intense. Like I, like I love, I love that. And I want to model for him intensity and fun, all that we described earlier. And I was too intense. Okay. And so he, there was moments where he's like, dad, like I'm doing my best. And I'm like, son, there's more for you to go. I know you think you're focusing and trying hard, but there's far more for you to go. You haven't figured it out yet. So I'm trying to help you. Dad, I'm fine. I'm doing my, I'm like, oh shit, I just stepped over the line. And so this would happen maybe four or five times, you know, in, in a couple months. And then he had his cousin come out just recently and his cousin was here. And so I backed out of the workout. He and his cousin, he was lifting more weight than he's ever lifted. He was faster than he's ever, right? Like all of a sudden, you know, it was actually great. This was the first psychology, sports psychology study ever was was a researcher, a psychologist watched his kid and a neighbor fishing. So he was with his kid alone and the kid was kind of casting his rod, you know, like just kind of general. Yeah. And then when his friend showed up, the kid was casting like twice as fast. So he's like, oh, wait a minute. When there's proximity in uh, peer proximity pressure, like something, someone that's similar to you, that we become more proficient. We get better. We're like trying harder. So part of it is just creating the, the environment, let alone us adults with all this wisdom. <laughs> so we think, it's you know, so saying true. you got to put your foot just like this and you got to do it just like that. Part of it, you know, and let's not be silly. Your nine-year-old just wants to hang out with dad. A hundred percent. So, you know, that, you, know and you could hug her went down 20 minutes and like, you know, and, and she'll pro- I could make a case and so could you that she'll be better as a soccer player because she's not looking for the attention of a man or an adult. Or another, which is a big part of it. Yeah, totally. Right. We, we we could have a whole nother episode on parenting girls and parenting boys and it, it, daddy. I so and that's a probably a longer conversation for another <laughs> day. But those one. that's thing. Yeah. You know, I got two boys and a daughter, and I'm not going to sit here and lie. There's times where my interactions with them is vastly different. Yeah. Yeah. The way I'll push my son and the way I'll you know hold them and the way I talk to her and it, it's very different. It, it's just right, wrong, or indifferent. It's a conversation for another day, but it's real. So let, let me ask you this. How, how much do you touch your kids? We're, pr- we're a pretty like intimate family in that regard. Like we hug and kiss goodnight. Yeah. We, you know, come sit on dad's lap. My, my, my boys, not real. They're a little older now. They won't, but my daughter will still come. We have like a running joke that like, she knows, all right, dad, I have to sit on your lap for five minutes every day. Like it's kind of yeah, like a running yeah, yeah. joke okay, with so us because I always so, say to her. And the reason I bring that up is because physical contact is so powerful and we don't really get it enough. And yeah. there's a unique thing that's taking place right now. Let me just do some brain chemistry really quickly is that when we're on social media, we're getting adrenaline, we're getting serotonin, we're getting dopamine, which are all stimulating wonderful chemicals. But we're not getting is oxytocin, another neurochemical from the brain. So oxytocin is also known as the cuddle chemical. It's the binding or bonding chemical. And so we're getting all these stimulation, but we're not really connecting with other people. Okay. So there's this dearth or there's this lack of, of deep connections. So one of the things us as parents can do is have a loving hand. 
and, and place that, you know, around the shoulders, hug, you know, like making sure that oxytocin and, and love is transmitted from a physical standpoint as well to our kids. And it's a settling down chemical. It's a connecting chemical. It's a parasympathetic activation chemical. It's so good for so many reasons. So I just want to over-rotate on that a little bit by saying, hey, parents, make sure that you are showing physical connection with your kids because they're not getting it probably enough. That's so, that's so my, my two nine-year-olds, my boy and girl, in public, they'll both walk up, hold your hand, yeah. walk. They're not too cool. My, my daughter, obviously a little different for little girls holding their dad's hand maybe than boys. I don't know if that's right or wrong, but that's my experience at least. Yeah. Um, my older one's a little, my 11 year old boy, like he's not going to hold my hand. Like he's not going to, you know, but, but don't get me like at night we're hugging goodnight, telling each other, love you, buddy. Proud of you. Yeah. Great job today. Quick little recap of the day. Hey, remember the lesson we broke, you know, remember the lesson we had when your attitudes, when you started getting frustrated, your attitude started going down. Did your performance get better or worse? It got worse. All right. So the lesson of, t- right. Like, so we reinforce the lessons of the day, the experiences of the day, whether it's sports or school or home talking to their mother, what, you know, whatever yeah. it is. So we, we try to have those nightly nightcaps, but I think that's a really important point. You know, that, that it, everyone always struggles with that. Like as they get older, like when does that end? But here you're saying there really is no like age where they age out of being able to be touched and well, intimate with their parent yeah. and what it's cultural too. So the yeah. Western has a cultural appreciation for touch that is different than let's say some of the Eastern uh, countries. And so I was, I was speaking with uh, a friend of mine who was a joint chief of staff, super important military position. And he says, Mike, when we were trying to, when I was trying to negotiate some very complicated stuff with China, this was like 15 years ago. He says, we were shooting at each other and like, it was, in, in, war is heavy. Okay. It's his point. He says, when we were face to face, this senior general in the Chinese army grabbed my hand and he said, can we go for a walk? And they held hands during their walk. We don't think about that, do we? Like we think yeah. we're othering, you know, like people in the wars and whatever. But like he says, it was cultural. He says it was beautiful. We were crying. It was amazing. Yeah. And so I share all that because culturally um, there's room for us to get better in some respects. And listen, I am not glorifying. (laughs) Um, I'm not glorifying other countries ways of uh, communicating. I'm saying we, we can do a nice job. Well, that, that brings me to my last point and, and my last question. And it was an amazing segue. It's you should do this for a living. Um, you, you talked about culture and uh, I, along those lines, I read a really interesting book recently called talking to strangers or talking with strangers, Malcolm Gladwell's book, where it's about understanding culture is the reason that strangers struggle to communicate with fascinating book. So it was right along the lines of what you just said. But anyway, to, to my last point, when you, when you talk about culture, I'm a big believer. And again, when we're coaching the kids games, like they're going to learn the skills of the sport. They're going to learn the, you know, the culture of that team. And I don't care if it's a nine-year-old girls soccer team or the U S women's national team. It doesn't matter the age culture to me is the single most powerful force in team building business school, whatever the organ, whatever the group of people that have a shared common goal, right? What, what are your, if you had a boil down culture, into its simplest terms, 
How would you classify it? Okay. One, we're speaking the same language in a lot of parallels. So culture, here's the definition that I'm working from. So culture is the artifact of relationships. So your culture, everybody has a culture. And the culture, whether it's positive, negative, whatever you want to say about it, is the leave behind from the quality of the relationships. So relationships between you and me begin with my relationship with myself first. So my relationship with myself is going to be an accelerant or a limiter to the relationship I can have with you. Okay, so relationships first begin with the relationship with self, then others, then the planet, then, you know, experience and mother, uh, I'm sorry, machines. So it's kind of, it's that order with self first, then others is the key takeaway there. And so when you think about what are the most dynamic relationships, they're the ones that are honest, they're the ones that are um, caring, they're the ones that are able to see what's good their whole best intent. There's a a mechanism of support and challenge to myself and to others. And in essence, it's any culture that you want to develop, it begins with the relationships you have with self and others. So that's the big takeaway. And if I could boil it down to two other words, it would be um, relationship-based and developmentally minded. Okay. And so that, that's kind of it. And this is something that Satya Nadella, the CEO of Microsoft, has trusted um, me and my team to be able to help do across his entire company. And so they, they are building what's called a growth mindset culture. So that is the, the attribute to their culture, which is, in other words, developmentally minded. And to have a growth mindset, you need to train your mind. And so that's what we're doing for Microsoft. And if once you train your mind, you'll have a better relationship with yourself and with others. I think if there's any point to go out on, I think, I think that's it. I, I purposely, I have a list of other things that I want to talk to you about, but I'm saving them because that way I can get you to come on for episode number three of the Michael Gervais experience. Listen, so, I, I love these conversations. I want to have you back on Finding Mastery as well. And so, um, yeah, there's probably a joint little podcast for you and I to do at some point where it's I, just I think, a little mini series. It'd be fun. I think so. I think we need to figure that out. Well, I, I look, I, again, we could go on and on for hours and, and record 10 podcast episodes with the amount of things that I'd love to ask you and pick your brain. But uh, again, to, to be joined by Dr. Michael Gervais, you know, one of the leading sports psychologists, one of the leading researchers is just understanding psychology, human emotion, human behavior, and how that relates to sports performance, coaching, parenting, and, and all those aspects. It just goes so it just so aligned with what our purpose and mission here is on you think. So uh, I just, Dr. Javad, I just, I can't thank you enough for again, taking the time to be our first recurring guest. And uh, so that's a huge honor, I'm sure. So I love it. Great. I, I can't thank you enough. I appreciate you. Thank you so much, brother. Uh, I appreciate you. Look forward to talking to you again soon. And we got to figure out what that project is together. I think we have a lot of shared, uh, shared passions. I hope you guys got as much out of that conversation with Dr. Gervais as I did. Um, you know, again, he, he started this journey for us. He has such experience, such perspective, you know, just as a dad, just as a parent, a coach, you know, all the things wrapped up in one to have a resource like Dr. Gervais to bounce some of these hard questions to, you know, put him in some of these situations and say, what would you do if you were me? It's just so it's such a powerful tool that, you know, myself and, and all of us listening 
that we can benefit. And we're just so thankful that Dr. Gervais continues to give us his time, his expertise to join us here as kind of our resident expert here on You Think. So to have him back as a recurring guest now for the second time, hopefully not the last time, um, Dr. Gervais and I have talked about how we can continue to work together to, you know, further this conversation around parenting and youth sports and, and all the things in between. So I hope you guys enjoyed it. Um, I hope it was as interesting as and enlightening as the first one. I, I believe it was even more so. So that was a, uh, that was a huge treat for Dr. Gervais to, to join us again. So I hope you guys enjoyed it as always. It is now time to bring in Tasha, my producer, who's got a few questions the, the questions Tasha seem each week to just continue to pick up. People love submitting them here on the show. They, they, they love hearing the answers. They love getting the perspective. And again, some of the ones that we don't know are ones that we asked Dr. Gervais. So it was, um, right. This, this audience interaction has been, has been a fun development here on you think. Yes, we love them. So keep them coming in. And then Greg, one of the first questions we have for you is our elite quarterback camps or football camps for middle school and high school students, are they worth it? You know, I, I'll, I'll break I'll break it down into a few things because, as always, I, I don't think there's ever just like a concrete answer across the board. I think, first of all, when you're talking about middle school and high school, I think two completely different stages in your development. So, for middle school, to me, you know, the the elite camps aren't really accomplishing much, right? We're talking sixth, seventh, eighth grade. You know, you're not even in high school ball yet. You know, I think at that age, you should be with your team. You should be training. You should be learning the fundamentals and the foundation, you know, building the foundation of, of playing the game, right? I think to, to our practices at night for the first hour of our practice, you know, we're teaching stance, steps, footwork, right? I mean, we look around at some of these other teams, everybody wants the ball they're throwing the ball around, they're hitting their tech, but we, we can't ask kids to do football movements. We can't ask kids to run plays until they have some sort of foundation to build on. So as far as the camps go, when you go to a lot of these camps, it turns into a lot of seven on seven. It turns into a lot of games and competition, which is all fine. I just hope that those kids going have some sort of foundation that they can build upon. If you've, if you have very limited um, experience playing the game of football, like true tackle football, if you go to a college camp or an elite camp that you're just paying that anyone can show up at, you're probably going to be doing a lot of things that you're not prepared for, right? You're going to be doing a lot of movements, being introduced to a lot of techniques that you don't have the foundation already for it to really be worth your time. And now you're probably just wasting your money. So I think the middle school age could, you know, can get a little dicey. I, I just believe you should be, find a great coach at your local pop Warner or your, at your middle school, if you're fortunate enough to have middle school and just learn the game at its base level. Now, high school kids, that's a different animal, right? So there's different types of camps. There's camps that you can just pay and everybody can go to. Those are a little bit more of a mixed bag. But then some of these elite camps that you that you have to, you know, qualified for, be invited to, those are really good experiences for these kids. You know, we're talking high school kids, 15, 16 years old. If you're able to, to qualify and be invited to one of these elite camps, you probably have an opportunity to play college football at some level. And now I would say, go for it. Right. I, I feel that way about all the sports. I feel that way about the kids going to these showcases in baseball. You know, if you can do it and you're invited to come, it's an unbelievable opportunity for you to see yourself with your peers from all across the country. So often I think back to myself when I was a rising 10th grader, I went down to the university of Miami football camp as a freshman. My dad took me and my brother and really for the first time, as a, you know, I was a high school kid as for the first time I got, I got outside of my little bubble. 
you know, I saw what kids from Florida looked like. I saw what kids from California and Texas and some of these other big football hotspots around the country. I could really get a clearer picture of what was out there and where I stacked up and where I needed to improve. And, and it was a great motivating factor. So I, I think for the high school kids to get out of their little town, get out of their little, you know, fishbowl and go see what's really out there. Um, I, I think it can be a great motivator. I think it can be, you know, very eye opening for the parents, for the kids. So I, I'd like it for the high school kids, go chase competition, go surround yourself um, with as many good kids as you can. But for the middle school kids, I believe that's about the development and there's a learning component that you need prior to going to some of these camps. That's good. That's a good reminder. Like when someone's the best in their own town, there's no one really to challenge them unless they go outside of their city. Of know? course. And when yeah. someone's the best kid in middle school, you know, when you're talking, for, especially for boys, you know, 11, 12, 13, there's a big difference between some 12 year olds and some 13 year olds. And, you know, some kids hit, you know, hit their growth spurts, they hit puberty at different times. There's different stages in the development cycle Middle school could be a very difficult time as far as baselining who's above who, who's better than who. It's a mixed bag. And oftentimes it doesn't all get sorted out until you get to high school when kids have right. all kind of reached their peak. They've all kind of, you know, hit puberty and developed and, and kind of are closer to what they're going to end up being is when you can make a little bit of a better judgment. That's why I believe that at the middle school level, learn the game, safety, yeah. the fundamentals, all that then we can layer on more elite competition as we go. Middle school is a hard time for not just sports. Middle school is just a hard time. Yeah. No question. <laughs> Everyone's figuring each other out. Um, the second fan question is, how does Greg instill sportsmanship in the team he coaches? Yeah, I think this is really important. You know, our, our rule, you know, our rule on our teams, you know, not so much a rule, but the culture that we try to instill in our teams is we are going to be highly competitive, right? We are going to come into every into every game, into every practice. And we are going to try to be as competitive, play hard, play smart. And we are going to try to win at everything we do. And we try to build a lot of that competition into our practices and into our drill work. And then hopefully that culture breeds itself to lend to game day when it really matters, right? We don't, we try not to do the on off switch, you know, Oh, practice, this is not that important, but Hey, the game on Saturday is super important. So turn it on. Kids don't know how to operate, right? They're either on or they're off. So we try to operate on at all times. Having said that, we are not, my teams are never going to show up the other team. We are never going to be the team in the, in the dugout chanting and taunting the pitcher. We're not going to bat flip when we, th we're just not going to do it, right? We are going to compete. We are going to be tough. We are going to try to beat every single team we play and show up to the field and be like, man, we don't want to play these guys, but we are not there to embarrass anybody. We are not there to get into arguments with the other players. We're not going to taunt them. We're not going to bat flip them. We're not going to, you know, we tackle them. We're not going to stand on the pile and, and taunt. We're, we're not going to do it. Like there is a way that you can be highly competitive and intense and fight and have all that, but also go about it the right way. And, and that's something as a team all across all of our sports that we try to find that balance, um, and no, get me wrong. When you're, when you're encouraging kids to compete and be up, sometimes they cross the line, right? We got to pull them back. I'd rather that kid and just kind of pull the reins back a little bit. But um, sometimes it can be a little bit of a delicate balance, but that's our approach. I believe there's a right way to play. And I believe there's a right way to treat the other coaches, right, right way to treat the other team. And that's kind of our model. How do you instill that in them? Like if they go overboard, you guys have like running punishments or is it like you're giving a speech in the locker room? 
Yeah, oft, oftentimes if you just nip it in the bud, right? So what we see a lot, especially in baseball, and you know, some teams, their coaches and everyone, you know, not only allows it, they encourage it. You know, the kid on the mound and the kids in the dugout are, you know, cheering, which I don't really love to begin with. Not cheering like as far as like clapping and stuff. Like they have all these like organized cheers. It's, it gives me a headache. But um, you know, they'll they'll taunt the pitcher like in his wind up as he's about to throw. They'll all go ah! and like and try to be like distracting and whatnot. You know, it's like standing behind the goalposts of a free throw shooter. You know, I mean behind the backboard. So it, I don't, I I just don't care for it. Right? Like it it doesn't bother me when the other teams do it. I tell our kids, hey, block it out. It's noise. You're gonna have to deal with adversity. We're not gonna tell them to stop. Their their coaches can allow but we're not going to do it. So if, if our kids get caught up in that and the other team's doing it and they want to do it back, we just go up to the dugout and say, no guys, we don't do that. They want to do it. They do it. We're not going to get involved with that. We're going to focus on us. We're going to go out there and compete. You're the pitcher on the mound and they want to taunt you, go strike the kid out, blow it by the kid and he'll walk back in the dugout and they'll look stupid, right? Like there's a way to handle it. than just, you know, getting in a pissing match back and forth to who can yell the loudest in the windup. Like I, I, it just, to me, that's silly. That's not competing. That's, that's like baby stuff. I want kids that are going to go out there and be mentally tough and fight when things get hard and go out there and compete to win and compete to play their best. That, that's what I want. I don't need all the, I don't need cheerleaders. Hmm. It's like instilling that culture early, basically. Yeah. And, and the more consistent you are, the kids know the expectations, right? They know, hmm. you know, you, if you, if you nip it in the bud in the beginning and never, it never festers to be a problem that you have to deal with down the road. That's good. And then the final fan question we have for this week is as a coach yourself, what do you say to your son's baseball team after a tough loss? Yeah. You know, this is, this is hard, right? And I'll be honest, this is hard for me. I, you know, you got to muster up a lot of self-control and just take a deep breath because, you know, you're frustrated. Everybody's frustrated. So I'll tell you a good story. So a couple, couple months back, back in June, um, I wasn't the head coach. I was just helping out with one of my son's teams. And we went down to a big tournament down in Georgia. There were 60 something teams. And I was helping out in the dugout with a few other guys. And we made a great run. We played really well. We got hot. Um, we started slow, but then we got hot when the bracket came, we beat some really good teams from all over the country and we made the championship. So it was our ninth game of the weekend. So it was a long weekend. The kids were tired. It was a hundred degrees. It was a it wow. was a long weekend and the kids really battled and we lost in the championship. We didn't play particularly well. Um, we made some critical mistakes. The kids knew it. We all knew it. We didn't have to yell. You know, they, they, everyone knew it. We just, we made some mistakes and, and we lost, you know, at the end of the, the conversation at the end, we were frustrated. We were tired. We were hot, right? Like all this stuff. But our conversation at the end of the, of the end of the game was, Yes, we lost. Yes, we had to stand out there and clap when the other team got presented this big old trophy as the World Series champs. And that was hard to stand on the foul line and clap. And listen, I, I get it. I had to walk off a Super Bowl. You know what I mean? Like but sometimes you have to muster it up. And we did it. We, we put on. And my message to them is walk out of this. Walk out of this facility. Proud. Stand tall. We're not going to walk out with our heads down. We're not going to leave and have people look at us and say, oh, see, they, we, we got them. You never let people think they got you. You walk out tall, no different than if you won or lost. We told the kids we were proud of them. They competed. They dealt with adversity. We won two or three games in the last inning where we came back from behind. And like, to me, those are the messages that are going to carry 
down the road and carry further with them than if they walked out with the trophy and they won every game by 10, right? Mm -hmm. I think we learned more lessons in that loss than we would have, if we would have 10 run ruled that team. And these kids walk out of there and say, Oh, we've got this We're the, you know, so there were so many good moments, but it's on the coaches and the parents to highlight those moments, even in times where it's hard to do so, right? You're pissed, you're mad, you're frustrated. You're rethinking every play that didn't go your way. There'll be a time for that next week at practice. We'll, we'll address that and make corrections. And why did things not go our way? But in that moment right now, you need to end all those speeches you have to give them something positive to cling to their last thing yeah. they hear from you, I believe should be positive, should be what's our plan going forward. We're not happy with where we are. Here's all the things that didn't go right. But the last thing they should hear from the coach is here's our plan. Here's what we're going to work on. Here's how we're going to get better. Carry this forward with you on the way home. And when we come back to practice next week, here's our plan to go forward. So this doesn't happen again. Like, to me, that's the key of all those hard after game speeches is to end with, okay, you told me everything I did wrong, coach, but what's our plan? Like, give me, give me plans. We as coaches and parents need to give them tools so that we can move forward. That's good. Well, that's all the audience questions for this week. And you could always submit them at Greg Olson or at you think on TikTok, Twitter, or Instagram. Appreciate it. Thank you, Tasha. And thank you to everyone for continuing to submit your questions. Uh, thank you guys, as always, for listening here on You Think, presented by Audiorama and Body Armor. And as always, rate, review, subscribe, wherever you guys get your podcasts. And uh, we look forward to seeing you guys next week. Bye.